Well, good day to you. How are you? I hope this finds you well. Um, hope you had a great weekend. Thanks so much for choosing to listen to Soundtracking with me, Edith Bowman. Uh, it is a pleasure to have you with us and also a pleasure in the fact that we are at a very exciting time in cinema with two particular films that are doing all kinds of brilliant things to encourage us all into the cinema. Now, I did witness the uh, double bill of Barbie and Oppenheimer on the same day. I did Barbie first, then I did Oppenheimer, and I could have quite easily gone round and done the whole thing again. Uh, you might have already taken a uh, listen to last week's episode with the fabulous Greta Gerwig. If you haven't, please do so. Her craft and enthusiasm and intelligence and wit uh, are on show in our chat as she talks about Barbie. Um, I should also say that for this brand new episode, which was recorded before the SAG strike began, uh, it is with the legend that is Christopher Nolan. Now, criminally, it's the first opportunity that I've had to speak to him on the podcast. And that's not to say that his work hasn't been talked about at great length, whether that's with his composers, Hans Zimmer and Ludwig Göransson and many others. So it was an absolute joy to welcome him to discuss Oppenheimer. Now, I love the kind of cerebral nature of Christopher Nolan's films. I think that he will go down in history as being one of the greats. I think he's one of them already. He's incredibly kind of calm and quite unnerving sometimes in interviews. But you can see that all his enthusiasm and all his energies are put into his craft because I think Oppenheimer is a masterpiece. It's a masterclass in storytelling. It's a masterclass in performances. And I just think it's one of the best films that's ever been made. Now, just before we get to Christopher, I mean, Oppenheimer is clearly one of the most anticipated films of the summer. And it was, I mean, I don't underestimate when I say this, but it was made to be seen on the big screen. I've got to say, it's one of the most physical cinematic experiences I've ever had, something that I will remember for a very long time. Nolan writes, directs and crafts his films for that purpose, to be seen and experienced in a cinema, particularly as Oppenheimer was filmed with the intention of being seen in 70mm IMAX. Uh, and View Manchester in Printworks is one of just three UK venues showing the film in this format and the only UK venue outside of London. The film is shown in all of View's other venues with the ultimate in seat, screen and sound for you to enjoy it. Also, if you are keen to do the Barbenheimer double screening and also watch Oppenheimer and Barbie back to back, View has scheduled screenings across all of its venues so that you can do just that and create a DIY double bill. So that's myview.com for all the details on how you can create your own double bill experience. Oppenheimer sees Christopher reunited with our good friend Ludwig Göransson, who will be joining me next time out. And it's with Ludwig's title track that we'll begin.
Congratulations. Oh my goodness. It was just an extraordinary experience watching your film of the night. Thank really you. was. I am at the Science Museum, oh, right yeah. at the back. The sound of the projector warming up was kind of almost <laughs> like it. I felt I was levitating even before the film had started. It was just yeah. the most beautiful start to the experience. I'm great. so glad they kept that projector in because they refurbished it all. Yeah. But they were closed for a couple of years. But. That slow build up. Oh, it's magic. Magical. Mm. Where did the journey with Oppenheimer start for you? For me, I've been aware of Oppenheimer's name and, and you know, the, the idea that he was father of the atomic bomb since I was a kid. Uh, I mean, I think of, like, Sting's song, Russians. He yeah. refers to Oppenheimer's deadly toys. I think the name was just one that I've been aware of uh, growing up in the UK at a time with tremendous focus on the danger of nuclear weapons. It was time of the protests of the women at Green Common and... Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament was at its height and everything. And so over the years, I sort of learned more about his, his story, including the, the incredible fact that he and his fellow scientists on the Manhattan Project, in the build-up to Trinity, they realized they couldn't completely eliminate the possibility of a chain reaction that would destroy the world. But they went ahead anyway and pushed the button. You know, that stuck with me. I put a reference to it in my previous film, Tenet. Yeah. Um, and then coming off that film... Rob Pattinson, who's in Tenet, he uh, gave me as a rap gift, he gave me a book of speeches that Oppenheimer had given in the 1950s. And reading that, reading about the father of the atomic bomb, wrestling the consequences of that and trying to figure out where things go from there. Are you seeing things already then in your head in terms of when you're, is that a sign that you need to take it forward when you're reading something like that and you're going, you can see this story, you can... Yeah, things when they, when they sort of stick with you and they keep coming back to you. And for me, that idea of pushing that button, not quite knowing whether yeah. everything would be okay. Uh, I wanted to be there. I wanted to take the audience there. Like, mm-hmm. what's it like to be there in the room, to push that button yourself? I then was given the book American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin, and that's 25 years of research, uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning book. It, it sort of gave you everything you need in terms of understanding his, yeah. his life and, and what he dealt with. And that gave me the confidence and the inspiration of, okay, let's, let's try and make a film. I'm back with Ludwig. I love him so much. He's so <laughs> brilliant. I mean, I don't know where to start with this score because it's, mm. it's everything. Yeah, it's just, it's so there in in the film. Mm. It's it's got so many roles. It's got it's just absolutely extraordinary. And I just wondered what your initial conversations with him yeah. were about what you envisaged and what you what you wanted or needed for this film. Absolutely, so, I, I never use temp score. So, you know, which is the practice of taking, you know, existing, previously existing soundtracks and using it in the edit suite so that you can kind of show the composer what you want. But of course, what you're showing the composer is what you want that they have to do something different. (laughs) So it's like, uh, therefore, they're giving you something you don't want. Um, So I don't do that. So the early conversations are important and they're had at script stage. So you read the script. And I did not have an idea, a fixed idea of what the music should be doing or what it would be for the film. Yeah. Uh, I knew it would be important. I felt that. But I didn't really... Sometimes you do have more of a kind of framework or a kind of idea of what things would be. With this, I really didn't. And so all I had to offer Ludwig was, 
I had the idea of the solo violin and how that might that might synchronize well mm. with Oppenheimer's interior state, his neurosis as a young man, the sort of crazy energy he has inside himself as he's beginning to visualize the quantum world. Uh, you know, the violin with its fretless tuning and, you know, just a little shift of the fingers can turn it from, you know, a wonderfully romantic sound to something really excruciating. Yeah. That felt like it it would go well with, with Oppenheimer. And uh, fortunately, uh, Ludwig happens to be married to an extremely <laughs> talented violinist, Serena. And uh, they started doing demos. Um, he put it, a, put it to work making these incredible demos where he'd sort of do things like take sort of horror movie clusters, you know, multi-track those, but, but have her play them uh, with a romantic quality, with yeah. sort of vibrato and, mm-hmm. and romanticism. Interesting experiments like that that started to sort of grow things as we were going into shooting. And, you know, we would visit set, we'd keep working. And then in post-production, what we would do is we would screen the entire film sort of every Friday. He'd come in the edit suite with myself and Jen Lame and, and Emma. And, you know, we'd watch the film with whatever he'd done that week and, and sort of grow the film, wow. grow the score together as a whole. And it got bigger and bigger <laughs> and <laughs> more and more sounds came in yeah. and you know but the, the violin is is still the heart of it but he, what he really did was he he grew it from this small seed of Oppenheimer's emotional life that's and so interesting growing out from there because there are certain points that I was when I was kind of making a few notes and stuff of where it's, when he teaches for the first time for example you, you can feel his joy in that experience of him sharing with this group of like-minded you know kind of Mm. um inspirational young people that he's kind of got the opportunity to be in a room with you can hear through the music that kind of almost got a celtic sort of nature to it in that little bit I think as well that the relationships he has with the, with the two female characters is so complicated and delicate and you know mm. and I think the music does a great job and it was one thing I wanted to ask you about how much did the music help um, with telling the story and the emotions of those relationships 
Well, I like to think that the music's sort of inextricable from the film. That that's certainly with my process and Ludwig's process. Uh, you know, when we're working together, I'm always trying to view the music as part of the essential DNA of the film, mm-hmm. not as a source that's sort of put on the stage yeah. afterwards. Yeah. Uh, which I a lot of film music feels like that to me when I see other people's films. It feels like a sort of a sort of decoration or a gilding at the, at the end to kind of make things yeah. more appealing in some way. And I, I don't enjoy film music like that. I, I think where it feels inseparable yeah. from the scenes, from the from the film, that, that's where it, it feels like it's doing its best work for me. And so with those scenes, you know, the scenes with, with Florence Pugh as, as Jean mm-hmm. Tadlock, uh, who, the obsessive quality that becomes so important later in the film, I think the music's a really key player in that. There's a delicacy to what yeah. the music's doing, certainly in terms of, Melodies. Uh, there are some complex melodies, some some beautiful harmonies. There are just all kinds of different things he's doing. It's a very, very complex score. It's yeah. very varied. Actually, um, we came to do the soundtrack, which hasn't been released yet, but we had to prepare it some months ago. Uh, it was very, very difficult to cut it down. Normally with a, with a movie soundtrack, you're taking the overall score and a lot of the cues will be derived from the same ideas. Mm-hmm. And they're recontextualized by the cut of the film and where they're used. And in this case, what I found was every scene has a unique quality to it in the music. It's so... Consequently, the, the soundtrack is it's an hour and a half long. It's absolutely enormous. Uh, there was just no way to do it justice uh, at any shorter length because there's so much variety, and yet it's completely cohesive. Yeah. Um, I think he's done a really remarkable yeah, job. Yeah, I absolutely agree. so much about the film that 
to talk to you about, but there's one scene, one of many scenes that really stuck with me, which is that scene with Killian and Florence when they're in naked in respective seats. That is one of the most beautiful scenes I've ever seen. There is something so tragic, romantic, emotional about that that scene and the way that it's shot. It's extraordinary. Thank you. So beautiful. Really, really is. It wasn't really a question. It was just, <laughs> just a comment, really. And um, also that the, your brilliant mind in terms of how you visualise things, you know, this character and the way that he has these visions, these dreams, these nightmares of seeing things and worrying about things or whatever, but the visions that he sees, mm. how you interpret that visually and also sonically, because that's so powerful within the film in terms of, you know, it's almost like his thought process, but visually in a way. Well, it was very important for me to find analog ways of of showing imagery of the quantum world, of what he would be imagining. Mm. And sound became a very important part of that. And my visual effects supervisor was one of the first people I showed the script to and said, okay, we don't want to use computer graphics. We want to do things that have a bit of, they've got a bit of bite to them, a bit of analog sort of grit to them because they need to be beautiful, but also a little frightening, a little dangerous. Yeah. And so he adopted this very experimental approach, which would result in you know thousands of hours of experiments of different techniques, you know, I don't want to go into them in great detail, but some of them microscopic, some of them bigger than that. Uh, and, you know, poor old Ludwig was made to sit through a lot of these because, uh, you know, I really wanted to infect him with that same yeah. need to sort of explore the, the quantum realm. My first conversations about uh, those images was actually with a physicist, a great physicist, Robert Digraph, who was uh, he was director of the Institute for Advanced Study, which is the job Oppenheimer had. And oh, wow. when I went to go and look, okay, can we film there? 
he very graciously allowed us to film that, but he also, you know, spent time with me talking to me about one of the things about quantum physics, the shift from classical to quantum physics, it was so alienating to scientists at the time, was, as he put it, you can no longer visualize the atom, which to a filmmaker who is about to start making a film where you have to visualize <laughs> the atom is a little daunting. But it started us talking and thinking about ways in which the imagery could be almost more metaphorical mm -hmm. and sort of illustrative in slightly different ways. And that, that notion of different images coming together uh, to give you an impression that's more than that, more than some of its parts. And that's where sound and music comes into play as well. And you start putting an emotional color to what would otherwise be sort of uh, the imagery of, of physical process, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, so really it was about harmonizing all those things and having them grow through the film to their ultimate expression, mm -hmm. which is the Trinity test and the destructive power of the animal. You also have this brilliant thread that runs through where you hear this this sound and then it's revealed what it is, which is the... the no feet. spoilers, please. The... <laughs> it's just stamping a feet. It's revealed. <laughs> uh, but but it's it's revealed, yeah, it's revealed. And you and it's... But up until that point when it when it comes in a couple of times prior to yeah. that, it's... You, you are kind of like, what is it? You know, you kind of... Yeah. It has a really physical... Uh, effect on you and yeah. I think part of that is because it's a physical thing yeah it's and there's particularly in IMAX there's literally a physicality to it because <laughs> yeah. with that low end you're, you're actually able to sort of move the air in the room in a way that the audience could feel which is one of the, the fun things about that, that format and a lot of that is a sound effect a literal sound effect but some of it also is score um, and Ludwig was able to take those tracks and adapt them mm -hmm. so there's a musicality to them at times and actually the sound is in there more than people probably realize. There yeah. are specific places where you're kind of intrigued by it, wondering what it is, but it's it, it runs throughout the film. Well, that was I was lucky enough to chat to him about Tenet, and we talked quite a lot about that, about how there's you know there's things that appear all over the film mm. that are kind of either hidden or they're mixed or they're yeah. kind of manipulated in in certain ways. But it's it's a it, you know it's a journey for for one sound or a collection of sounds as well throughout the film. They, well, they help tell the story. They help tell the story. They help link things mm -hmm. in a less conscious way. Um, and and hiding things. You know, sometimes people might question the validity of detail that's so hidden that you can't consciously identify it. Mm. But it's really about linking threads acoustically and using the acoustics, whether you're talking about sound effects, whether you're talking about music, or that interesting twilight zone where they all kind of they both interact. You don't quite know mm. 
what's in school, what's and and I love that. I mean, there's always this amusing moment when films were you come to lay down the tracks at the end and they have to lay them down without dialogue for all of the dub versions that are going out into the world. And part of the discipline of that is you go, okay, these tracks are sound effects and these tracks are music. And we often wind up with the wrong thing in the wrong tracks because because the mixers have, have really lost track of, that. okay, what, is that a sound effect? Is that, is that music? Um, and Ludwig loves that, you know, and, and fully embraces that, that approach. Uh, but it, it makes subliminal connections. It makes you yeah. feel something. You can't quite understand why you're mm. recognizing a particular thing or why it means something to you that it wouldn't have at the beginning of the film. That's why when I came out, I wanted to go straight back in and watch it again right. to kind of almost have that that kind of unpeeling of things. For you know, the more you watch it, the more it kind of gives you almost in a way as yeah. well. Which yeah. is how I still feel about Interstellar when I watch that film over and over again as well. Oh, and the you. score is such at the heart of that. Um, your cast, oh my goodness, are extraordinary. Mm. Um, you know, we've seen so many of these brilliant actors, actresses in, in films and know that they can, you know, they've got acting chops about them, but this has given them another opportunity, another stage to play on. Mm. Robert Downey Jr., for example. Yeah. Oh, yeah. what a role. Well, one of the great movie stars, but also one of the great actors. And the two things are not necessarily always the same thing. Mm. But, um, you know, for those of us who knew what a great actor he is, but hadn't seen him do that thing where you, as an actor, you just lose yourself in a character, yeah. where it's not about, you know, the charisma on the top. It's really about just that truth of a, of a very real person. To see him do that, be a part of him doing that again for the first time, I think, in a long time, was really exciting. Mm. And Killian, you know, having that relationship with, yeah. having what within, you know, over what, five times already, is it, I think? Five this years? is the sixth, this I think. Is, yeah. And uh, yeah, we've known each other for 20 years and I was very fortunate to meet him at near the beginning of my career, near the beginning of his career and realize what an incredible mm. talent, a unique talent he is. But this is the first time I've ever been able to work with him as a lead. And what was so, it like giving him that call? Going, this oh, one's yours. I mean, to be able to call him up and say, yeah, this this is the one. You're <laughs> going to take center stage. You're going to carry the audience with you. Uh, it was such a thrill for me to be able to do that finally. He, you know, in, in terms of trying to describe the film, it's really hard to describe, which is such a healthy thing because it's kind of, it's part thriller, it's part courtroom drama, it's part, there's so many, it's, it's so many things. For him in terms of this character, do you give him the luxury of, of, of play in a way in terms of there's a script, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of things to hit, marks to hit, all that kind of thing. Mm. But in terms of giving him the opportunity to collaborate with you and create this character, is that important for you to? Yeah. I mean, it, with the best actors and, and Killian obviously is, is one of the best, you're looking to bring on a creative collaborator, somebody who's looking at the whole thing, mm. not just their particular details, uh, you know, their lines, you know, whatever. Um, and the interesting thing with taking on a real-life figure, particularly an iconic one like Oppenheimer, is you are sort of forced to make decisions about how much is impersonation and how much is, is just finding the truth of a character. And, and early on, we agreed we weren't interested in simple impersonation or impersonation for its own sake, yeah. recreating a physical appearance for its own sake. This film is not a documentary. This is our interpretation of Oppenheimer. It's Killian's interpretation of Oppenheimer. And that was very important. That felt like our responsibility. Mm. And that moment where, you know, the where it's detonated, that test is detonated and that mm. shot of, you know, with, with the glasses on inside the, the light and 
the sound, the sort of the that kind of you know of the kind of sound we do. There's nothing for no spoilers, please. I know it's just. <laughs> It's, it's funny to talk about spoilers in a film about a historical reality that you can Google, but uh, but you, making those decisions about how that would yeah, how how absolutely. that little section would work. Yeah, well, a what lot of it mean? is about the build. Uh, really looking at it, you know, the the impulse, the whole reason to use IMAX, for example. Yeah, um, we're trying to make the screen disappear. We're trying to immerse the audience and take them to this place out in the middle of the desert in the middle of the night. Yeah and live through that with these characters. And so a lot of it is about process and procedure. And Ludwig was able to give us this incredible kind of rhythm and pulse to it that's a ticking clock and a heartbeat and a growing tension that just winds up and up and up as the different procedures take place. Because for me, the tension of this kind of thing is all about the detail. It's all yeah. about the keys that are turned, the switches that are thrown, the nervous glances that are exchanged. It's It's all stretching the audience's nerves and tension as far as it possibly can until it's released in the actual beauty and terror of uh, what must have been felt at, at mm. the, the Trinity explosion. Thank you for your time. It's so great to get to chat to you about it. It's and you know I can't wait to go and watch it again. It's just great. I think it's absolutely phenomenal. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Oppenheimer, that's Manhattan Project by Ludwig Göransson, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Christopher Nolan. Yes, we did it. We made it happen. My huge thanks to Christopher for taking the time to talk to us. Oppenheimer is on general release now and really is one to see in the cinema if you possibly can. As I said, all details on how you can have the most 
amazing experience. The ultimate in seat, screen and sound. To enjoy, just head to myview.com. You can listen to my previous chats with Ludwig by heading to edithbowman.com and the very good news is that you'll be able to hear him talking about this film with me this time next week. That's right, Ludwig is our next guest on Soundtracking in our Oppenheimer double bill and I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Thank you.